Welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac. Today we have a special episode for you. We chat with Mark Krozik, who's just about to release the book Coppice Agroforestry, Tending Trees for Product, Profit, and Woodland Ecology. Not only this, but Mark also owns and operates an agroforestry and keyline consultation and installation business. He also spends time teaching workshops on natural building, among a bunch of other things. In this conversation, we chat extensively about coppicing, its role in historical North America, as well as the complexity of the system in balancing its benefits versus the challenges you might face depending on what you're trying to do. So hopefully you guys really enjoy this conversation. And if you have any questions, please reach out. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us. Could you tell our folks a little bit about yourself? Yeah, it's a pleasure to join you, Andy. And I'm, I'm thrilled to just have a platform and an opportunity to share some of the insights I've gleaned about coppicing over the years. My wife and I live in New Haven, Vermont, in the Champlain Valley. Uh, we have a small farm and homestead that we've built from the ground up since 2012. I did not grow up in this world at all. Uh, I, I grew up in the suburbs outside Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and um, I lived a pretty happy and healthy early childhood, uh, but I really had no opportunities to cultivate a strong connection with the natural world. Um, and so I really kind of came to this uh, approach to reskilling and sustainability and participatory ecology through uh, an introduction to environmental studies as a uh, undergraduate student at the University of Vermont. And I was pretty fortunate because early on, I learned about permaculture design, uh, ecological design, and, and just, you know, kind of the, the concepts of simple self-sufficient living. So uh, that really, that introduction catalyzed this, you know, lifelong path of learning for me. And, you know, at this point, I'm, you know, 20 years later, I'm just kind of, you know, continuing to try to hone skills, um, you know, add to my portfolio and, and both as an educator, designer, consultant, um, and practitioner, farmer, you know, put those ideas into practice, test them out in the real world, and just share as much as I've been able to glean with others who are interested. Awesome. I wouldn't say similar story, but um, I'm more from an urban area, but my uh, parents are immigrants and they were farmers before they came to this country. So a lot of that came over. So my understanding of like farming and ecology was a little bit different, but at the same time, it wasn't like I grew up on a, you know, 20 acre farm or a hundred acre farm or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't really something I was exposed to. So to dig in a little bit deeper on that, you know, with coppicing in particular, it's definitely kind of a very esoteric, like nuanced thing that, especially here in the United States, is kind of uh, either unknown or if the, the circles that it's known in are very small. Um, so finding people in, in the real world outside of the internet that also are familiar with it or, or are practicing it is almost unheard of. And it's unfortunate because even though it is traditionally thought of as a European practice, there is uh, a history here in the United States uh, or at least in the landmass that is now called the United States, uh, where this practice has been done. I know you've got a book coming out. Uh, you're going to be talking about it a little bit. Could you talk a little bit about that uh, history of practicing coppicing here in the United States? Yes, I can. And my knowledge base and the information that I've 
discovered and uncovered when it comes to the history of coppicing here in, in North America is really fairly limited. Um, I came to coppicing through Ben Law's The Woodland Way book back in 2001. Um, I had just graduated college and I spent a few years doing work trades and internships with various folks throughout the U.S. and I, I traveled a bit in Europe. And I just was totally enamored with the framing of, of Ben Law's lifestyle and livelihoods that revolved around his connection to his woodlands. And so I wrote him, I'm getting a little convoluted uh, response to your question here. No, it, make, it helps. Yeah, I, I first grew familiar with coppicing through his work. I read The Woodland Way, I think the year it came out, and I wrote him a letter, uh, like an old-fashioned letter. He had his address in the book and asked if he ever took apprentices, and he did. So that fall, um, I, I traveled to Southeast England, and I had an opportunity to apprentice with Ben Law for nine months. And that experience you know, just kind of completely transformed my, my vision for life, uh, my connection to landscape, and just left me like totally inspired and catalyzed to, to return back to the Northeast, the Northeastern United States, and you know, apply this and explore who else was doing that as a practice. And I basically returned in 2002, uh, finding very little receptivity to the idea in kind of the larger network. Um, and like you said, kind of very few people who had much experience or knowledge that I was able to kind of, you know, compare notes with and, and build off of. And so for the past 20 years, I've basically been sharing what I know through a few different avenues. I ended up apprenticing with some folks in North Carolina, learning more about traditional woodworking. So, you know, kind of one uh, avenue was through the world of craft and, and hand tool woodworking. Um, but then also kind of this, you know, engaged land management or applied ecology or permaculture. And so it's really only been in the last probably 10 to 12 years that I've started to learn a bit more about how coppicing has been used by peoples in other parts of the world, because much of my experience was all derived from this, you know, English centric uh, approach to coppicing, Eurocentric, but especially England. And so kind of diving a little bit more deeply into the history and, and traditions of coppicing here in what I'll often refer to as temperate North America, because, you know, we're the, the, the practices in Mexico and Central America are kind of beyond the scope of the research. I just had time and energy to do. And because I live in a temperate climate. I'm much more familiar with the species that are here. So just to acknowledge that North America is not just, you know, the United States and Canada, um, but that's where most of the energy and efforts gone uh, in this book in terms of research. Um, and much of that, well, I think the easiest way to think about it is to break it into, you know, indigenous practices and then the kind of post-colonial history and tradition. And the work of MCAT Anderson, she's an ethnobotanist and anthropologist um, in California who wrote a book called Tending the Wild, has probably uh, done more to enhance my understanding of how indigenous peoples have used coppicing and other related management practices um, to both, you know, influence their landscape and also meet their needs. I can say a little bit more about that in a moment, but I don't know. Have you, have you encountered that book, Tending the Wild? I, I haven't. I was actually just 
putting in my phone to look it up later. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I can't recommend that book highly enough for your listeners and and for anyone who's interested in this theme. Um, it's definitely it's it's dense. It's very um, full in terms of uh, information content. And she's got a number of kind of you know shorter articles that are also available online uh, that just kind of distill the essence of the practice. I've also seen a few videos on YouTube that help kind of articulate some of these traditional life ways in a more consolidated way. But in a lot of the permaculture and ecological design circles I'm a part of, um, Tending the Wild really uh, helped to catalyze this kind of inspired look at how you know, the indigenous peoples of this continent built these reciprocal relationships with landscape. Yeah. And I should also say before I share some of the things I know about it, that I feel to a certain degree that it's really not my story to tell because these aren't my peoples and these aren't my people. I'm not uh, an indigenous North American. Um, And so I don't fully understand these stories. I don't fully understand the context um, but I've been really deeply inspired by the ways that they've lived in reciprocity with the landscape. So I only have a real cursory understanding of their traditions and I can do my best to share what I know. Um, but I just kind of want to couch it within that of, you know, trying to avoid the, you know, tendency toward appropriation or oversimplifying or, or disconnecting those stories from um, you know, larger kind of cultural and spiritual beliefs and relationships. Absolutely. And I think part of the... You want me to, should I keep going? Or, yeah, I don't yeah. want to talk for too long. No, no, no. You, you know, uh, uh, uninterrupted. You, you know a ton about this stuff and I want to know more about it. So, <laughs> sure. so that's what you're here for. Yeah. So I think one of the things that for me was most enlightening about Kat Anderson's work was that we tend to think of peoples as being either agriculturalists or hunter-gatherers. We kind of have this binary uh, breakdown in terms of how humans have interacted with landscapes over time. And one of the things that really kind of transformed my perspective on this was the idea of, uh, again, her work is really focused around chronicling these practices, traditional uh, land management practices of of Californian indigenous peoples, modern California, obviously. Um, And so... Uh, creating this kind of new category of land intervention uh, as horticulturalists. So, you know, whereas with the hunter-gatherer ideal, it almost is uh, framed in such a way that the the interaction is more passive, right? They're, They're, you know, collecting resources from the landscape for their needs, but not necessarily um, enhancing, transforming, or, you know, using kind of intelligence and design in order to um, participate in the evolution of the succession of the landscape. Almost like a pre-pastoralist in a sense, like some of those like processes of this is what the landscape needs, but not necessarily for me, although I do benefit from it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, I think that sounds uh, very much aligned. Um, And so the idea of, you know, her book Tending the Wild really speaks to that the, the title of her book, Tending the Wild, uh, really speaks to the nature of that relationship that, you know, I'm going to use the term management over and over again, because that's kind of the way we tend to frame it with our sort of Eurocentric, um, you know, heavy handed approach to how we transform and engage with landscapes. But the idea of tending is really one more of participation 
and of, of listening and active cooperation. And so I feel like as we think of how we can learn from and integrate these, these concepts and practices, that idea of tending, of, you know, again, uh, being a good listener, being, you know, grounding our action in observation um, and, and then being stewards of the landscape with a much longer term, you know, multi-generational vision um, is all kind of implicit in, in just reframing humans' role in ecosystem management or participation. And, you know, for a lot of these you know, traditional cultures, um, the tools and technology available to them ultimately drove how they were able to participate in their landscape. And so the idea of, of the saw and the availability of a saw for like cutting and processing wood is something that's very recent, you know, historically speaking. And so, you know, people were either using stone tools um, or in some cases, you know, once they had access to bronze or iron tools, they were able to, to you know, that, that kind of simplified and in some ways advanced their ability to modify landscapes. But um, by and large, fire has been the most potent and powerful tool for managing landscapes for people across the globe, um, you know, up until, you know, the development of, of metal processing technology. And so that was very much the case for California. Uh, or, you know, what's modern day California. Um, apparently, there are estimates that between 5 and 13 million acres of land were burned each year in California as a result of both lightning and human set fires. And one of the reasons why fire was such a potent tool was because, you know, not unlike other forms of disturbance and the, the one that we're most prone to today um, as humans would be either, you know, you know, clear cut forestry or, or other forms of, um, you know, chainsaw or heavy equipment type intervention or tillage, you know, fire allows us to kind of reset forest succession in a very efficient way. If you think about the tools and the technology available to people um, in this kind of, you know, pre-metals age, the ability to kind of reset succession in such an expansive way with otherwise, you know, very limited tools, um, you know, fire is just, it's, it's the best option out there. Um, and then similarly, when you think about your ability to, you know, process, harvest and transport raw materials, the idea of, of rods and poles, as opposed to, you know, timber, big, large diameter trees, um, just makes all the sense in the world that the materials were much better, these small diameter materials that would, that would grow as a result of some type of disturbance, again, often fire, um, were just that much more uh, well-suited to the, the tools and the technology that they had at the time. And so there's a number of avenues that we can kind of take that thread, but you know, fire is a tool to stimulate healthy, vigorous regrowth and produce materials that were perfectly suited for, you know, their, their material needs. Um, it's kind of the foundation of that. Essentially, the indigenous people here were burning and the trees that naturally coppice would benefit because it burned away all the competition, which had some great benefits. It, it burned away the competition. And what it also was doing was um, basically just kind of resetting the plant's life cycle. And I know you've covered this in previous podcasts, but the idea that you know, with, with woody plants, 
trees and shrubs and, and woody vines too, but we don't tend to think of woody vines as being something that you coppice so much. They don't have the luxury that herbaceous perennials do to die back to their root systems during dormancy and then regrow all their aerial parts during the growing season. And so if, as they sustain damage from, you know, a branch getting broken off in an ice storm um, or um, browse from wildlife or an insect um, infestation, you know, they either need to kind of compartmentalize that damage and, and basically, you know, kind of continue to grow, but incorporating that, that wound or that damage into future growth um, or what, what coppicing as a, as a human um, form of intervention provides is the ability to basically press reset on the succession of that one plant. And it stimulates that plant's root system to generate really healthy, vibrant, lush, robust, straight, supple regrowth. And for indigenous peoples all across the planet, one of the most important uh, products through over time has been basketry. And so that's one of the reasons why coppicing has been such an important staple practice for people throughout time is that we need ways to carry and store goods. And if for anyone who's ever made baskets, there's a great um, figure or, you know, set of photos in Tending the Wild that, that really kind of helped me understand this concept, which is uh, a picture of a bundle of unmanaged um, Western redbud stems and then uh, a bundle of, of sprouts that had been managed. And you see on one side, you know, the unmanaged stuff, it's all gnarly and branched and irregular. Um, and then the bundle of sprouts are all, you know, perfectly straight, symmetrical. They look very flexible because depending on the type of basket you're making, you may need, you know, 300 to 1500 shoots in order to complete that. And if you're weeding through unmanaged, unmanaged vegetation, you know, you're, you're looking for a needle in a haystack in terms of finding something that's really high quality um, and that's going to be useful. And so who knows exactly how that relationship between disturbance to initiate coppicing, you know, kind of emerged for people. Uh, but just recognizing that following burns, you would get this, you know, um, flush of this flexible, straight, unblemished, very minimal branching regrowth, just this cluster of perfect material for craft work. It just kind of makes sense that this is, you know, a relationship that's like perfectly matched for one another's needs. Yeah, it, it reminds me, there's like this stat that's like, you know, hunter gatherers took them like two or three hours a day to get their caloric content harvested. That sounds like this great idyllic thing, but also like it's because they were doing a lot of that basket making, mending, all of these other things that processing what they harvested. Because if you've ever processed like acorns, like it's a lot of work. It, it's not something like, oh, I just got these acorns. I'm going to have them for a snack. Like mm -hmm. it, there's a, a bit more or hickories or anything else. Hey there, it's Andy from the Corporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content 
and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. So streamlining a lot of those processes is really inherent to being able to make all of this sustainable for a community. So burning, again, like you said, helps streamline a lot of that by just making the resources abundantly available. And it's something that also benefited a lot of the, the wildlife too, because it increased carrying capacity by, uh, like you said, resetting that ecological succession into more of a savanna type ecosystem across most of North America, where again, things like deer and all these other species could survive and thrive really. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, there are a lot of parallels between these practices in Europe and what we see, you know, traditionally here in North America as best we can understand, which is that idea of this you know, kind of mosaic landscape, a, a patchy landscape that's comprised of various stages of ecological succession. And, and so that's what you get by, you know, practicing this, these, you know, prescribed or managed burns is, is these patches of, of dense, lush, healthy regrowth. Um, because when we look at, you know, providing diversity in habitat for wildlife, especially um, in a lot of cases, it's these early successional habitats, the ones that, you know, are more thickets or old fields that are going to provide some of the best browse. They're going to tend to have more, you know, fruits um, available to wildlife. They provide good cover. Um, but you know, by kind of creating this mosaic of landscapes that express various stages of succession, we really kind of, in a lot of ways, uh, amplify the amount of diversity that the landscapes can sustain. And so that's what, you know, a lot of these traditional practices were doing um, was, you know, kind of helping, again, reset that successional pathway um, and ensure that we have, you know, various uh, stages expressed in the landscape um, instead of everything being kind of what we tended to imagine up until we began to understand the level of, of uh, indigenous intervention in, in the landscape here is, you know, that kind of closed canopy dense uh, old growth forest, whereas a lot of the early historic accounts talk about these kind of open park-like landscapes that um, they could, you know, ride horses through. Uh, whereas I look at some of these unmanaged early successional regrowth patches of regrowth here on my landscape, and they're thickets that you can't maneuver through at all as a human. Like wildlife can kind of find their little nooks and, and crannies and, and move through them, but they're almost dense and impenetrable. Um, and so you know, they were, they were enhancing the landscape both for themselves, but also for, you know, many other members of the ecosystem. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it's almost like we think of like rotational grazing as like this good thing for the ecology. And this is like multi, multi-year rotational grazing in a sense where you're allowing that succession to happen and you're opening up spaces for each of those successions where animals can kind of transition through as they need seasonally and so on. And, uh, you know, you're talking about like these thickets and it's almost like natural hedgerows where, again, you, if you have hedgerows on your property, you know, like how important they are for uh, ecological diversity as that marginal space. Uh, and this is something that's almost part of that natural progression. And as land managers, we can help those processes by creating spaces for them. Exactly. I think the, the analogy to uh, rotational grazing is a really apt one because, uh, it just kind of speaks to that idea that we 
we're using like very intense disturbance. We're leveraging disturbance as a tool, but a tool to, you know, help promote health in regrowth as opposed to just obliterating the landscape, which is what a lot of people tend to think of when they imagine, you know, a, a clear cut applied to a landscape. And it's like in the right scale, in the right context, a clear cut can actually be a really rejuvenating tool because, you know, when we, when we talk a bit more about the European approach to coppicing, as it became a little bit more codified over time, essentially it's just small scale clear cuts practiced in succession. And so a lot of this comes back down to how we, the scale at which we think about landscapes and we can talk about, you know, the, the scale of the landscape at the individual organism level or of, of ecosystems at the individual organism level at the path scale and then you know the 30,000 foot like landscape scale view and we want to kind of have all of those scales in mind when we think about the effects of how we participate and one of the big challenges with us being able to kind of you know apply and mimic these indigenous practices is that we've parceled out the landscape in such a complex way like the socioeconomic systems that we've applied to our landscape make it virtually impossible for us to think about, you know, more organized landscape scale management, um, especially like where I live in the Northeast, the Northeastern United States, where we have much smaller parcels, generally speaking, than we do as we get out West. And so the, the patches and the communication between those patches has really been um, deeply severed. And it's very yeah. hard to kind of replicate what once was a much more kind of holistic way of, of participating in land management. I heard the term that humans are fire beavers. And I feel like that that's pretty accurate. Like when you start thinking about it, we, we have the same impact on the landscape, but instead of water, we use fire um, where we clear cut spaces and then uh, let that regenerative process begin after we get what we can out of it and you know, build our, weave our baskets and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the, idea of trying to bring some of this stuff back and you know how do we manage a landscape that has been managed in a certain way for an extended period of time and obviously what we're doing today really isn't uh, a long-term solution like this the way we live today is can't continue forever it's just there's no way and um, obviously we can look to the past to try to get some ideas of what we could possibly do and like you said in a lot of cases it may not be practical under the current conditions to say, all right, well, if we just switch some of these things, if we start in incorporating fire into our land management, you know, I I'm looking at my subdivision and, you know, thinking about how, how much work would it be to get, <laughs> to try to do uh, a prescribed burn here in New England, like you, uh, towards the Cape where there used to be intensive burning because, uh, the landscape here is just like littered with jack pines, which are not really productive. And, um, fires helped reduce that and allow for other species to take hold and make, you know, make it possible to grow food. Well, I say grow food, but I mean, make the landscape more um, willing to support humans, we'll say. So like, how, how does all of this kind of apply in today's world? Yeah, well, I think that that really is the question. And um, like, like all things, the answer depends. Um, and, and so I feel like in a lot of ways, one of the big challenges that we face is that lack of a multi-generational 
uh, connection to land and also just that that kind of deep um, long-term understanding of of participation with landscapes that as as you know I'm sure a lot of the listeners know already that the idea of like perennial agriculture woody agriculture is something that just in a lot of ways doesn't align well with the economic systems of the modern age um, and so creating uh, you know first and foremost I think we have to look at each landscape or each application within the context that you know it exists and so perhaps in a, a suburban landscape where everybody's got a half acre or a two acre parcel, um, you, you're going to have to think about it in a certain degree at, you know, your patch scale that becomes your patch. Um, and, and I think at that scale, you know, even the urban scale, it's like, you can think about it as, you know, the org organism level management that you have a single tree that you're managing in your landscape for a certain need. And I think that is probably the most important take home for the relevance of, of coppicing in the modern day is that the reason why it persisted as a practice over time is because it met clear needs and it, and it was well suited to the tools and the technology of the time. And so the economy of coppice is essential to making it relevant. It has to meet your needs for some purpose. The, the way that coppicing finds relevance at a small scale is because it's going to pr produce materials that are like of direct use to you. And so for people that have gardens, one of the, one of the ways that coppicing uh, persisted over time in Europe was that people would produce all sorts of products for um, different garden needs, tomato steaks, pea sticks, um, trellises for bean poles, things of that sort. And so it could be that you've got some wild vegetation, things that you would otherwise find like completely undesirable in your landscape around me. That might be the, the box elder, or it could be the princess tree if you get a little bit further south. Um, some of these kind of early successional, what we tend to think of as weedy species that grow really vigorously. And instead of trying to eradicate that, perhaps we can find a way to you know, kind of redirect the energy that's being expressed as that plant tries to grow in order to produce something that's useful to us. So now we're producing these, you know, both aesthetically pleasing, but also really useful products that we can use at like the backyard garden scale. One of the ways that, you know, kind of the gateway to coppicing for a lot of people is that they get into weaving. And so that's probably the easiest way um, that it becomes relevant to folks if you have an interest in doing any type of woven craft, because it just produces the best materials possible in a very short uh, time frame and on a very small scale. So, you know, willows are kind of the, the, uh, the all-stars when it comes to any type of woven craft. But in the meantime, you know, as they're growing, they provide all sorts of other functions because especially when you're, you know, at that smaller path scale, urban suburban landscape, having some vegetative screening cover um, privacy could be protecting you from wind um, or just defining a property boundary. You know, you just, in a lot of cases, in a single year, you're going to get minimum four to six or even eight feet of regrowth. So you're going to have this wall of vegetation uh, that springs up really quickly. So, you know, any type of woven craft is is just, you know, coppicing is just a no-brainer. Um, but also, you know, when we think about, you know, anyone that's trying to establish tree crops, just simply growing more biomass on your landscape that you can use to, you know, support the 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 growth and of those of your tree crops as well as 
you know, build healthy soils and, um, you know, help nurture a healthy fungal biology in your soil um, makes a lot of sense. So that, that kind of weedy grove of, of um, what in some cases might even be kind of invasive or opportunistic vegetation suddenly becomes really valuable to you because you're just growing biomass on site that you don't need to import from somewhere else. So those are some of the ways at the really small scale that that begins to make a lot of sense and become relevant to people. You know, as we start to explore uh, landscapes larger in scale, again, it really kind of comes back to, you know, how we're meeting some material need. And so, you know, in in the the book that's coming out, there's a chapter on the economy of coppice. And it's all about, you know, some of the range of different products that people have used over time, the species that are best suited for that, and um, the type of skill and energy that's required in order to transform those into useful materials. And that really comes down to the individual in terms of, is there a market for that? Do you have these skills already? What species are growing on your landscape? Um, and I like to think about that as this continuum of added value. And so, you know, at one end, there's been a lot of energy put into exploring um, woody agriculture as a way to produce, you know, voluminous biomass for uh, electricity and, and heat energy, but that's basically the lowest value use for that material. And so, you know, at the other end of the continuum, um, it's, it's art. It's something that's almost completely decoupled from um, the, the physical, like tangible value of, of the, the materials themselves. Um, it's this expression that can transform people's worldview or their understanding of landscape. And, you know, within that we have, you know, furniture or fodder or fuel wood. So, you know, a lot of this comes down to your own specific context and how it's relevant to you, your landscape and your, your larger community and the economy that it's a part of. Yeah. And I think this idea of like craft has come up repeatedly on this show. And I think one of the really important things is that we need to have a different relationship with the objects in our life. And I think that is really important to reinforce some of the utility of coppiced goods because we, we don't see things as like this table was a tree, we think. I mean, it's not. It, well, it was, but it was like it's compressed saw, sawdust from, you know, probably a hundred different trees. And then they throw some veneer on it and, you know, make it look pretty and that's it. But it, it doesn't have any any of its agency that's been kind of removed because of its lack of being an actual piece of wood that you can say was on a tree that was in the town next door, whatever it might be. Uh, and some of that needs to come back for us to have a little bit more ownership of the purchasing process uh, for those types of goods. Um, what's really interesting to me is we've come this far into this conversation and we haven't really talked about livestock management uh, and coppicing as uh, a utility in that process because you know many species are not only good for animals to eat because they'll eat it and can gain weight, but also because a lot of times they have really good health benefits for those species. Uh, so I, I did want to ask a little bit about in your book or just in your own experiences, working with coppicing and tree hay or tree fodder and some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, I, I've had mixed feelings about it over time. Like when I was in England, the idea of of pollarding versus coppicing, or some people say pollarding, I say pollarding. Um, you know, it, it seemed that there wasn't a lot of interest in, in the idea of tree hay, nor of the complexities of managing 
for re-sprouts higher up off the ground, the coppicing. And that's partly also the circles that I was participating in. And I think this also comes back to economy though. And that's because it's so cheap to get herbaceous biomass, like baled, brought on site. It's really hard to compare. Um, like around me, I can get 600 pounds of dry matter, you know, in hay form delivered, or I pick it up, you know, in a round bale for 50 bucks. Jesus. And when you think about the amount of labor that it (laughs) takes, it is, it's incredibly cheap. And, and so, you know, it's the same thing with a lot of what you were talking about with craft a moment ago. It's like, if we're trying to compete with a handmade chair versus something you can buy at Ikea or Walmart, for a lot of people, it's just a no brainer because craft has become art in the modern world. It's not essential. It's not meeting essential needs in a lot of cases. Um, And so I feel like that's a big challenge when it comes to tree hay in the modern world is that, you know, the playing field is, is very uneven. And so uh, there's two main ways that, that I'm aware of, you know, tree hay fodder crops being part of, you know, managed grazing landscapes. There's the, the, uh, you know, cut and carry type system where you're actually managing plants yourself. You're coming in, you're lopping the stems, you're bringing them to your livestock, which if it's already a part of your, of your flow through the landscape, that, you know, can be a good way to supplement your, your livestock's diet. Um, I know you've had Shauna Hansen on the podcast. I know Shauna a bit, and we've had a bunch of conversations about it. Shauna's really inspiring with what she's doing. The, um, way she participates in her landscape and so much of what she's been able to, you know, discern and relearn and teach. Um, but there's not a lot of people that are going to have the time, energy, and 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 kind of tenacity to to participate at that level. Um, and so, cut and carry in a certain context is, you know, super appropriate, but also I think unrealistic for a lot of people that have a nine to five that it's that much easier just to go out and and buy hay and have it baled and ready when they need it. Uh, you've spoken with Steve Gabriel and, you know, and on his farm, I know he's got some windrows of, uh, of willow where la- the livestock have like direct access to, to browse um, as they're exposed to it. And I feel like that's kind of the Holy grail in terms of having a system where the animal is able to have access to the plants directly that we don't have to go in and harvest, but both systems are imperfect because they're going to do a lot more damage. Like, you know, they're going to not only browse on the leaves, but they're also going to strip bark. They're going to, you know, potentially break off stems or damage the coppice stool. And so, you know, we also have to kind of deal with the fact that there's going to be unintended consequences of giving them that free access to the plant. I think until we're able to come up with a way that we can do it at scale, it's going to be very hard to see widespread adoption of tree hay um, for anything other than, you know, kind of a natural dewormer or a nutritional supplement that's providing other minerals or essential nutrients that they're not necessarily getting from herbaceous forage. And I think we can find opportunities to kind of leverage both of those approaches. So like, for example, on my landscape, we have a lot of these kind of old growth thickety um, zones on the property that include what a lot of people would consider invasive species like common buckthorn, Japanese honeysuckle. And then we've got things like box elder species with almost no commercial value at all. And so in those situations, it's like, you really can't do any worse 
than what's there. If you just you know allow your livestock access to those zones, the worst thing that happens is they damage them really bad and they sprout back. And so that's where I think it especially finds a lot of relevance is where you can use these kind of margins of the landscape that otherwise aren't seen as having a productive value. Um, and, you know, just kind of add that to your rotation, giving the livestock access in terms of like replacing uh, hay as a winter feed for animals. I can't see until we mechanize it. I can't see a way for that to be relevant to most people um, unless you have, you know, a lot of time and wherewithal and a desire to participate in your landscape to that degree. Yeah. It, it's a lot of work. I, I've harvested tree hay for the winter before and I know obviously I don't do enough of it to be like proficient at it but like it's a lot of work and um you look at it and you're like oh I spent an hour to get like a couple days worth of feed (laughs) like this is ridiculous hopefully you guys enjoyed the first half of this interview in the next episode we'll be continuing this conversation to support this project you can go over to Patreon or poorprols.com to access our social media on various platforms. And, of course, support us on iTunes by giving us a review, which increases our odds of getting new, more exciting guests as we continue to grow. This is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac.